Hello and welcome to Beyond Japan, an interdisciplinary podcast that looks at the broader reach of Japanese studies from within and beyond Japan. This podcast is brought to you by the Center for Japanese Studies at the Sainsbury Institute for the Study of Japanese Arts and Cultures, in collaboration with the University of East Anglia. I'm your host, Oliver Moxon, Project Support Officer at the Sainsbury Institute and Researcher of Japanese War Heritage. This week we are joined by Dr. Mark Hudson, archaeologist in the interdisciplinary Eurasia Three Angle Research Group at the Max Planck Institute for the Science of Human History to discuss Bronze Age Globalization. Mark's research of Jomon-era Japan has indicated that socio-cultural exchange occurred between the Japanese archipelago and mainland Eurasia, followed by a period of re-Jomonization, where external cultures were rejected in a return to the local. I'll be asking Mark what prehistoric globalization looks like and how it relates to our contemporary understanding of the process today. We hope you enjoy the show. Good afternoon, Mark. Thank you for joining me on the podcast. Hello. Thank you very much for inviting me. So, uh, first of all, I'd like to know a bit more about you. Can you tell us about your area of expertise and how your interest has brought you there? Yes. So, I'm an archaeologist working mainly on Japan, on, well, Neolithic and Bronze Age Japan. Um, I started my career working on the Yayoi period. But after that, well, the last 20 years, I've been working quite a lot on what you might call non-state societies, so Hokkaido, uh, the Ainu, and also in Okinawa. And I excavated a site in Okinawa on Miyako Island for uh, 10 years called the Nagabaka site. And um, well, recently I've been working for a ERC project at the Max Planck Institute for the Science of Human History in Jena in Germany. And the project is uh, headed by Martin Robitz, who's a linguist. But the project as well, it's combined linguistics with archaeology and also archaeogenetics. And the topic of the project has been the trans-Eurasian language family and the, the expansion of the language family. Fascinating. So to begin with, your article is about social change in Jomon-era Japan, a time period that covers 14,000 to 300 BCE. I'm sure you don't cover almost 14,000 years of history in your article, so could you narrow down what time period we're dealing with and give us a picture of what societies there were around the Japanese archipelago at this time? Yes, sure. So, well, as part of this uh, ERC project, we started looking at uh, Japan, Jomon Japan, and the period around 3,500 BC, when millet farming had already spread to Korea and to the Russian Far East. But cereal farming did not spread to Japan for another, well, 2,500 years. And we started to wonder why. Well, the classic answer would be that Japan was an isolated group of islands. But when we looked at the evidence, we found a much more complex and interesting situation. And for me, an essay published in 2016 by Ilona Bausch was a real sort of eye-opener. And while people had known for a long time that there was some exchange between southern Korea and Kyushu in the Jomon period, Jomon pottery had been found at several sites in Korea, such as Tung Samdong, which had been first discovered during the Japanese colonial period. But Ilona's essay showed that this type of exchange did not gradually increase over time, as you might expect if Jomon Japan was sort of slowly 
brought into the Eurasian world. Um, instead, there was a much more uneven series of changes. Sometimes there was a close connectivity with Korea. Sometimes Kyushu shifted to have stronger links with the Eastern Japan. So the point is that there were big changes happening in Japan over the third to second millennia BC, but these changes are quite hard to explain using traditional theories. And while in the third millennium BC, the very elaborate culture of the middle Jomon more or less collapsed and the population seems to have declined. This is sometimes explained by climate change, but other possibilities exist. Ecological overshoot has been suggested, and even epidemic disease was suggested uh, some 40 years ago. And while recently there's been you know, genomic evidence for late Neolithic plague as far as Lake Baikal. So this is a possibility that can't be discounted in my view. But anyway, the period after that, so the late and final Jomon cultures were, well, decentralized, rather mobile societies. Um, they were exploiting new maritime environments, for example, small islands like Okinawa, the Kirils, Rebun, Resuli Islands. And there's some evidence for targeting large fish like sharks, for example. I see. Now, your article uses the term Bronze Age globalization. So let's tackle the term globalization. Even in its contemporary context, it has many definitions, but for this episode, let's go with the one offered by the World Health Organization, which defines it as the increased interconnectedness and interdependence of peoples and countries through the opening of international borders to increasingly fast flows of goods, services, finance, people, and ideas. Now, notions of borders and countries might not apply in the Jormon period, so could you tell us what kind of globalization you're referring to in this context? Yes, well, obviously we don't conceive of globalization in exactly the same way as the modern world. But I sort of agree with a number of archaeologists who've suggested that we can see certain macro trends in certain periods. I myself used to be interested in world systems theory, but that, while it usually requires a sort of core periphery relationship, which I think is not really appropriate for the Bronze Age, since this was a time when the periphery was quite strong and not necessarily underdeveloped by the core. The Danish archaeologist Helle van Kilde has coined the term bronzization. So the Bronze Age was a time of new long-distance links. Bronze itself spread from Western Eurasia into China, Eastern Eurasia, there's a whole military technology, swords, spearheads, chariots, which also spread to the east. But it's not just the diffusion of these artifacts. According to Van Kilder, bronzization is a sort of process where what she calls transcultural responses were generated uh, through this process. So it's not just the case that you know artifacts have a direct typological impact on other artifacts. And Van Kilder, she says that the Bronze Age is rich in objects that were neither imports nor truly indigenous. So the, the relationship or the response was more complex, um, sometimes through skewer morphs, so artifacts that are 
made in one material to uh, imitate another material. And a, a really good example here is in, in Northeast Asia is bronze daggers made of stone. So they're polished stone daggers, but they're clearly imitating bronze. But sometimes the relationship can be even broader. So, for example, the lack of decoration on German pottery in Western Japan could be an example. Could somehow be imitating general decorative trends on the Eurasian mainland. So these are sometimes called creative translations in material culture. It's very difficult to prove this, but this is certainly the the background which、uh, Bronze Age archaeologists have talked about, and I think that can be applied to Japan. Right. So you mentioned that these societies in Japan were connecting with other Eurasian Bronze Age cultures. Which cultures feature most prominently in this Bronze Age globalization? And do we know if the, if the peoples of Jomon Japan were influencing Eurasian cultures in turn? Right. Yes. Well,、um, there were certainly links with Korea, and our paper that would be published、uh, very soon presents, as well as archaeology, some linguistic evidence for. Words borrowed from Koreanic into Ainuic, so the language family which today Ainu is the only living member. We sort of assume that this language family was present in the Jomon period. So Korea is one region, but also with China, and one example which I probably mention later is a lacquerware lid found at the Itoku site in Shikoku. Which seems to have come from、uh, southern China, but also their links with Japan were the sort of northern steppe zone, which was very important in the spread of bronzeware and bronze technology across Eurasia into Japan. And well, one of the interesting things、uh, for me here is the sort of similarity of social change over the late Jomon, final Jomon, into the. Yayoi period. So Japan was open to the outside, and、um, increasingly part of a broader Eurasian area of exchange. I see. And so, is there any sort of evidence that shows elements of Jomon Japan cultures in Korea or in the Northern Steppe, as you mentioned? Well, we know that、um, there was、uh, people moving back and forward, and there was certainly Jomon pottery excavated in Korea. Uh, a number of sites,、um, I think, at over ten sites. There's some、um, obsidian from Japan that's been excavated in Korea. Also, some jade. So there were several objects which were、um, being exchanged back and forward. The influences on Japan that we're talking about in our article are sort of broader Eurasian Bronze Age impacts. So the same. General impacts were affecting Korea at the same time. It's not just between Korea and Japan; it's part of a broader process that's occurring at this time. So suddenly, you see the same general trends happening in both Korea and Japan. So, for example, you also see these、um, polished stone daggers in Korea, made imitating bronzewares. I see. Now, one area you point to as evidence of globalization at this time is social change, such as the value of jade ornaments, new social networks forming, and even changing languages. How can you determine social change from the material archaeological record? Right. 
Well, we can certainly say that people were moving around. There were new technologies being shared, new designs, ideas. Even we think a few words were being borrowed. And in our paper, we discuss a number of specific examples. One is a bronze knife from Misakiyama in Yamagata. This is clearly a Northeast Asian type of knife. We discuss polished stone knives, which seem to mimic the bronze knives. We discuss the Chinese lacquer, red and black lacquerware lid from the Itoku site in Shikoku. And um, this uh, Itoku site is very interesting as well because a few years ago, the zoo archaeologist Akira Matsui had reported metal cut marks on human and animal bones from the site. Now, that would be consistent with our interpretation, but we conducted a re-examination of the human bones and our results did not uh, support Matsui's interpretation. So we think that the marks on these bones are taphonomic or they could be bites or gnawing from animals. So they're not uh, caused by metal tools. We haven't examined the animal bones yet. It could be that um, the animal bones have uh, metal cut marks, but we're not quite sure. Another example we discuss is a stone axe, a polished uh, stone axe with a perforation in the center. And it has a, um, a design, which um, incised design, which could, well, it looks like a Chinese character. It's possible that it's a Chinese character. We discuss pottery. There are a few examples of tripods. The best example is from the Imazu site in Aomori, which has, well, it's a tripod, it has three legs, but it also has cord marking. It's obviously made by people who know the Kamigaoka final German pottery tradition, but they also know about these Chinese tripods. This Imazu tripod is, is very small. It's only about 10 or 11 centimeters high. So it couldn't have been used in the same way as, as in China to boil water. So exactly what it was used for is, is a difficult uh, question. But it's certainly um, imitating these uh, new Chinese uh, style of vessels. And well, also in the late German, final German, you get a big increase in new types of vessels like teapots famous teapots, which obviously weren't used uh, for tea, but they look very similar to contemporary Japanese teapots. There are changes in surface decoration, which I've mentioned already. So there are lots of uh, changes in, in pottery, which um, probably to some extent are being impacted by trends on the Eurasian mainland. There are ritual changes. Tooth ablation is one which really comes in at the very end of the Middle Jomon, beginning of the Late Jomon, so in the third millennium BC, and then becomes uh, very popular, very common uh, across Japan at this time. And another possibility is the use of cannabis, which is probably a native plant to Japan, but seems to become much more common in the Late and Final Jomon. And this possibly reflects a similar trend across Eurasia. So those are some of the main categories of artifacts that we discuss in our paper. Fascinating. So you cite Justin Jennings' 2011 book, Globalizations and the Ancient Worlds, to provide a rough timescale of how 
globalization played out in Jomon, Japan. And what caught my eye was the uh, creation of tension between the local and the global after a period of cultural exchange, leading to what you refer to as re-Jomonization in Western Japan, where the local culture is re-embedded. Not only does this sound uncannily familiar with trends around globalization we're living through now, I'm amazed by this idea that there was this sense of local identity and the global over thousands of years ago. What impact does this revelation of Bronze Age globalization have for our understandings of globalization today? Yes, well, it's in the German context, I mean, it's very hard to say what was the local and what was the global. Um, so there's several new quote-unquote German traits which spread from Eastern Japan to Western Japan in the late and final German. And Tatsuo Kobayashi, well, over 30 years ago, he argued that this was what he called Jomon resistance to changes coming from the continent. But I don't think it's so simple because, well, for example, Eastern Jomon figurines, clay figurines, were certainly not traditional in, in the west of the islands. They were, in fact, a new culture, an intrusive culture. And in certain respects, it was Eastern Japan in the final German that was more open to this bronzization. So these tripods, the bronze knife, the uh, the stone knives, most of these are found, well, a lot of them in the Tohoku region. So the sort of the German heartland. But I think we can say that this, well, re-Germanization, if you like, was a, a response to bronzization, but it wasn't a simple sort of knee-jerk repetition of the old, ye olde German culture, the traditional German culture. It was something quite new. They were responding to new social changes. And in terms of what this means for contemporary globalization, well, I was thinking about um, Brexit and Britain today, and while some parts of British culture seem to be rather stuck in a time loop. But, um, well, example of our paper shows that the people of German Japan, they resisted globalization for a very long time. But that doesn't mean that they stayed the same. In fact, quite the opposite. Their society underwent uh, very big changes as they attempted to respond to the Bronze Age. They resisted this bronzization for a long time, but they were experiencing uh, quite significant changes. I see. Fascinating. Well, thank you for answering my questions. Uh, before we finish the episode, could you share with us what other projects you're currently working on? Yes, yeah, sure. So, well, one of the things we're currently working on is um, what it relates to what we've been talking about today. It's paper on the spread of agriculture and language, the Ryukyuan language to Okinawa, to the Ryukyu Islands. And, well, we can say that the Ryukyu Islands were part of this uh, process of ancient globalization that we've been talking about today. So, for example, there are sherds of uh, final Jomon Kamigoka pottery from the Tohoku region, which have been found on Okinawa Island, which is a distance of around um, 2,000 kilometers. And then from the first millennium BC, there's a trade in tropical shells, which developed between Okinawa and Kyushu. And these shell bracelets may have been designed to replace bronze, which was still quite difficult to obtain in Japan at the time. This shell trade uh, continued for centuries, but 
interestingly enough, seems to have had little impact on the Ryukyu Islands, which resisted these globalization trends um, really until the Middle Ages. And it was only after around AD 900 that farming, the Ryukyu languages, and new people began to spread south, leading to the Ryukyu medieval trading state, which brought the islands into close contact with Japan, Korea, China, but also Southeast Asia. So, you know, explaining why agriculture took almost 2,000 years after arriving in Kyushu to reach the Ryukyus is, is difficult. But it certainly wasn't because the islands were, the Ryukyu islands were isolated. So that's the, 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 the problem that we're currently um, looking at in this uh, paper, uh, new paper, which, um, well, I hope will be finished uh, this summer and hopefully will be um, published um, quite soon. Fascinating. I'm sure we'll all look forward to hearing more about that. Thank you, Mark. It's been a pleasure. Okay, thanks very much. You can find the link to Mark's research profile in the description below. Next week, we'll be joined by Alyssa White, PhD candidate in archaeology at the University of Oxford, to discuss the prehistoric tragedy of the world's oldest shark attack victim. The 3,000-year-old remains of Tsukumore No. 24 were first excavated in Okayama Prefecture in the early 20th century, covered in hundreds of small cuts to the bone which baffled archaeologists until now after Alyssa, along with a team of researchers, compared the damage to that of contemporary shark attack victims. Join us as we explore the final moments of Tsukumon number 24 in amazing detail. We hope you'll join us then. Thank you for listening.